Hey, everybody, what's up? It's your boy, MJ. Hey, man, I'm excited to announce a great community and platform that I've been working with called Rare Liquid. Uh, you know, a couple months ago, I was at an incredible event in Paso Robles with the Rare Liquid team and their founding artist and producer, Turtle Rock Vineyards. Uh, you might remember this was my number one wine from 2021, my famous Blackberry Cobbler a la mode motherfucker. Uh, Rare Liquid is really cool. They're building a network of artists and producers, collectors, and storage providers to solve the provenance problem for the rare wine and spirit industry. Members get access to verified limited edition drops from elite producers and can frictionlessly share, trade, gift, and monetize their collections. While for the first time in history, artists and producers can earn a royalty payment every time their bottles trade on the platform. Rare Liquid is expanding to 560 members through their invite-only Founders Club drop. You can check it out at rareliquid.club, which I'll put in the show notes. Uh, Rare Liquid has given me a limited number of membership invitations. If you're interested in an invitation and learning more, hit me up on Instagram at MJTaller, or you can just send an email to blackwineguy at gmail.com. Hey, I'm MJ Taller, also known as a Black Wine Guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. Hey everybody, what's up? It's your boy MJ. Welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today is the winemaker and general manager of Hirsch Vineyards, Jasmine Hirsch. Uh, Hirsch Vineyards was founded in 1980 by her father, David, with a goal to produce fruit that would result in site-specific wines. Uh, Jasmine was born and bred in sunny California, but went all the way across the U.S. to go to the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia to earn her degree. Uh, she spent seven years in the business worlds of Prague, Amsterdam, and New York before returning to California to join Hirsch Vineyards in 2008 as director of sales and marketing. She became the winery's general manager in 2015 and was named its winemaker in 2019. And Jasmine's goal is to continue producing highly rated examples of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Welcome, Jasmine. Hey, MJ. Well, thank you so much for being here. What uh, you you brought up a plethora of wines. What uh, what do you, what do you got here? I think we should probably start here, huh? Well, we started making rosé, so I thought that'd be fun to taste a Hirsch Estate rosé. I think it would be fun too. Amazing. So tell me about this. So I've wanted to make rosé for a long time, um, but could not figure out how to make it the way I wanted to. Um, our old winemaker Ross Cobb. You know, and I tried to futz around and cheat and kind of make like a sagne or something like that, and it was just it wasn't good. And he told me, if you want to make real rosé, you got to use the same grapes you would use for any of your other wines. And I was like, I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. Like to use Hirsch Pinot. Yeah, like you know. I'm not making. I could sell that shit. You right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and you know what you can charge for rosé is exactly. a lot less. Yeah. Um, so I kind of shelved it, and then when I took over the winemaking in 2019. Um, I just thought, you know, I don't really care. I mean, if I can sell most of it direct and charge a little bit more for it than a typical rosé, 
but I really wanted to make something that was evocative of Hirsch, that really tasted like it came from Hirsch, and uh, more in a kind of Italian rosato style than in a French Provencal style. Yes, darker. It's got. It is more in a rosato. Yeah. Style. Yes. Yeah. Picked riper too. I mean, it's thirteen five. Um, That's so. She said barrel fermented. I'm the guy who <laughs> drinks all the summer pastries. She said picked riper. It's thirteen five. We're getting crazy with the I alcohol. Mean, well, for rosé, for rosé, you know. You know. Um, my good friends in Sonoma have a 15% rosé. Well, there you go. Sixteen, And, well, obviously Dave Finney always makes, but he had a rosé that was 15 out of France. And isn't, and I think even, well, I mean, I mean, you got, you have a different site. So these are very site-specific wines. We want to start there. Because even in Bandol's can get over 14, but it's hot. It's really hot in Bandol versus how I cool... If we stay within the world of rosé of Pinot Noir, I think a lot of California rosés of Pinot Noir, they're trying to copy a Provencal style, right? And mm -hmm. so you're trying to put a square peg in a round hole, in my opinion. Um, Pinot Noir is fruity. It, it, I mean, it, it can be fruity tooty, right? And so I think trying to make it into kind of pool water is not <laughs> actually what Pinot Noir is best suited for. Oh, 100%. And also, if we're going to – I mean, this wine is – we haven't actually released it yet, so $40, $45. That's a lot of money for a rosé. So it needs to have more than just be like that wonderful, refreshing, like poolside beverage that a lot of great rosés are. Um, and I want it also, I mean, it's 100% Hirsch Estate Pinot Noir. So I want it to also taste like Hirsch. You know, I want it to be taste like the ocean. I want it to have some intimation of tannin. I want you to get that Hirsch fruit. Um, and we just, you know, that's not, a, you know, you got to pick things ripe in order to achieve that. Yep. So for us, I mean, I think if you look in the world of like rosé of Pinot Noir, most of the time like people are picking a lot earlier than they would pick. Gotcha. So, yeah, that's more my point. Gotcha. So like thirteen five is like that's like right around where we make like Pinot, right? Yep. Um, in other words, we're looking for quite mature fruit for our rosé. I mean, but it's delicious. It's it's real wine, like you said. I mean, it's it's uh, so good on you. Um, so while I'm sipping on this, let's start at the beginning. You were uh, you're a California girl. Indeed, born uh, and raised. Where are you from? I was born in Santa Cruz. Wow. Okay. So, uh, tell people it was like growing up in Santa Cruz, California. Well, we moved when I out when I was a baby. Okay. Um, so I grew up in Marin County and Sonoma County. Okay. My mom lived in Marin. My dad lived in Sonoma. So right. we would go back and forth. Um, it's a good. It's like a good divide, right? Because like Marin County is like pretty bougie. It's very bougie now. It was pretty bougie back then. Um, so yeah. you know, you kind of learn how to like navigate like that world, but then we'd be up at the ranch with our dad. You know, that's what we always called it when we were kids. We never called it the vineyard; it was the ranch, um, and that's like total country. You know, so to have both was really a gift. So I love, I mean, I love Marin. It's a place I wish I could live. Uh, love Tiburon. Where, where in Marin were you guys? Mill Valley. Mill Valley. Oh, On the mountain. Mill Valley. Yeah, it's like one of the first places I visited when I moved to California. Actually. Mill Valley. I mean, back in the day, I mean, like Jerry Garcia lived there. Like it was, yeah. it was awesome. Um, it used to be a really different kind of place than it is now, and you know, it's inevitable that happens to yeah, places. You know, it's super place. close to the city. It's beautiful. Like it's gonna get expensive and fancier. Um, but yeah, that's where we grew up. Yeah. There and um, how uh, we? How many siblings do you have? I have an older sister. Okay. And then I have three younger half brothers. Okay. Yeah. All right, so yeah. how old were you when your parents got divorced? Uh, I was four when they separated. Okay. Yeah. My sister was six. Yeah. What was that like? Uh, my response was to get very angry. Yeah. And my sister's response was to, you know, try to take care of me. Yeah. Yeah. 
the classic yeah. older child, younger child response. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Um, your dad um, actually started Hirsch Vineyards in 1980. Um, had he already purchased the property when they separated? Was he already working on the project? or? Yeah, so he bought the property in 78 with my mom. They okay. were still together. I was born in 79, and then he planted the first vines in 1980, and then they divorced and like, or separated in 83, 84. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so was that his... Well, was that his full-time gig? Like, you know, it's a different time, 1980. It, you know, land in California has always kind of been expensive, but it's a different time. So what did your dad do uh, before uh, he started? So he was a college dropout. He's from okay. the Bronx. He went to Columbia, dropped out. He was a hippie. See, this, is, this is what we're talking about. Hitchhiked, <laughs> hitchhiked across America. Um, he's, he's, yeah, he's, he's, and then anyways, he settled in the Santa Cruz Mountains. But, um. He started a company importing like handicrafts from around the around the world. Okay. And um, like you know, like those blankets from Oaxaca and stuff like yeah, that. That's what I said. He's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the kind of stuff that was probably sold at like early right, head shops. Like, 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 right, <laughs> Guatemalan blankets and all. hundred <laughs> percent. He actually told me that when he would go to Mexico and you know to go sh to go on like buying trips, like you would like socialize and drink with the men, and then you had to bargain with the women, <laughs> 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 and that's how they got you. Um, but then he met my mom, who um, had always been, like, a passionate seamstress. Like, she had, Kay. like, when she was, like, 16, she, like, you know, fully sewed, like, a suit for her stepfather. And so she was, like, a super talented seamstress. And the company kind of morphed into a clothing company. Okay. And they were doing, like, junior sportswear, you know, selling clothes to, like, JCPenney and, like, Macy's and stuff like that. Um, so they were having the textiles made in India and um, the clothes were assembled in, in Hong Kong. And then um, but they would go to Europe all the time for like inspiration and shows and stuff like that. Um, that's like, so like going to Europe and living in Santa Cruz is how my dad became interested in wine. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so, but the land when he bought it was like super cheap because nobody wanted to be out in that place where we were. I mean, it was so like where we live, used to be all redwood forest and obviously there was a tremendous amount of money in the trees but once the trees were gone the whole land was like clear cut um once the trees were gone people tried to live from that land ranching sheep and cattle but it's su it's like all of california it's super dry in the summer um it's in the middle of nowhere so like it was subsistence farming um so when my dad bought the land like he was able to buy it for like next to nothing mm -hmm. so now, I mean, my dad says that he thinks one of the greatest threats to the California wine industry is the inability of young people to buy land. All the land is being consolidated in the hands of corporations and, you know, I mean, high-end vineyard land. And you yeah, can see, yeah. like, the, you know, and corporations and, and you know, very wealthy individuals. Mm. You know, and it's like, that's, you know, it's what it is. It's but No, but it is. It's, the it's energy, the creativity comes from the young people, you right. know. I was watching, I started watching this thing, documentary, the other night, and it's actually on beer. Right. But but same thing. Right. So beer was hyper local because it had to stay fresh. Yeah. And then it was it was Bush. Bush was married to Ann Houser's daughter and, and, and he didn't want to run it. So he gave it to Bush and he was hoping it would fail. Bush created refrigerated cars to ship stuff. But, but my whole point is to your point. Right. Like. There are vineyards that 
are now owned by conglomerates that were ju- that are that are just historic, and you just worry because it, if if something is not chic or a new grape comes in, will they rip up? You know, because for them it's more financially viable. Yeah. Well, and I think it's also the kind of wines that get made. I was just having this conversation at lunch that how many times have you had a profound wine made by a corporate winery? I mean, it happens, right? Yeah. You know, but. Well, I've had wines that, you know, what they do is they acquire like smaller producers. Yeah. And for a while. Yes. The, you know, but then, you know, depending on the terms of the contract, then, yeah. then it, it was just to buy the name yeah. and then, you, you know, but, but yeah, I mean, but no, I mean, it's not like, yeah, there's, you know, no one's setting out to, well, I, in my experience, let me be clear, that's why I have no sponsors. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't think, you know, you know, corporations don't set out, the nature of a corporation is not to set out to make the best products, to actually make a profit for its shareholders. So mm. you have to yeah. understand Tension. that. And intention becomes our reality. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which sure. is, you know, and so, I mean, Catherine Herman, she's, oh, oh, she did a, saw a post, she's like, you know, it's it's, it's 10% wine, 90% business. And I was like, that's yeah. scary, you know? Anyway, yeah. we're going to have a great conversation. We're having a great conversation. Um, so, um, all right, so that's really cool because nowhere does it say, like, your dad, like, and your mom, they were in a fashion business. That's yeah. really cool. So that, that you know, so your mom, uh, was she still running that business after they separated and you guys, you know, was she still doing it in the world of fashion? So when they separated, they wound down the company. Like okay. It went away. But, um, and then my mom, um, you know, took time off from working and okay. raised us. And okay. And then she did work a little bit, like the town that, like in Mill Valley, like the folks that started Banana Republic, like lived there. And so there was like, and they were starting. So she did do some other like design work and stuff like that. Um, and then she owned a company that, she married a Hawaiian man. Uh, my mother's last name is Kui Amalu. And um, so she started a, a store in town that sold like Hawaiian amazing stuff from Hawaii, wow. like Koa bowls and stuff like that. Um, Shit yeah. like that will kill in a town like that, especially <laughs> <now>. <laughs> You want to buy like a fancy wooden bowl for like a gazillion dollars. Yeah, that's like Mill Valley. <laughs> that's, that's so yeah. cool. So, yeah. um, <clears throat> and then like, so where is her? She know it's like rugged. It's like real cinema coast, rugged, kind of out there. Okay, so yeah. where, where, where are you guys kind of located? So two and a half hours north of San Francisco okay. on the coast. So you basically go up Highway One, up the Pacific Coast Highway, and then a little town called Jenner, about seven miles north of there. You leave the coast and you go up this insanely beautiful road called Myers Grade. They shoot like car commercials there. It's like it's like one of those like. One, oh yeah, yeah, it's one of those. Yeah, sh- and like yeah. The, you look, look when you come down it, you're like overlooking the ocean and the coast. It's it's stunning. And um, and then you climb up into the hills, go on these like back roads. You come to our mailbox, and then five miles later, you get to the winery and the ranch, which is where we all live as well. Um, it's a five mile drive to get the mail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. UPS, God bless them, actually will come to the winery, but USPS, no. You gotta go down the mailbox. Um, yeah, it's a crazy place. It's it's funny. Like I remember like these folks from New York came and they like fell out of the car and they're like whoa like where are we like you live here like you, people live here and it's like you know we're two and a half hours like that's like the same distance from like Manhattan to the Hamptons right but when yep. you get to Hirsch there are no Hamptons right. <laughs> <laughs> just like trees <laughs> new cows <laughs> some like ro- like you know ramshackle buildings yeah um so so then like you know Mill Valley 
you got some friends, you got some peers, but there's like, you, you didn't have any, like, any neighbors when you have like a ranch. Like you might have a, a neighboring ranch, but it ain't like, hey, let's go play with Susie and Billy. Well, no, you do. That's okay. the thing. I, I, I almost think it's funny. I was having this conversation with one of our neighbors, George Bohan, the other day on the ran into each other on the road. And um, I think when you have fewer neighbors and when you live in such a remote place, I mean, everybody is very good at taking care of their, their situation. But nonetheless, like sometimes you do need our, your neighbors, right? And so I think you – are more thoughtful and you know all your neighbors whereas if you live in the city this is like george was talking about like when he was like in school and like god knows when like i think he went to school in like san jose or something like that he was like i i didn't know any of my neighbors like, yeah. and they're like right next to you and i think that that's true right you live yeah. in the city and it's like you kind of don't know anybody oh, you tune people out almost yeah, yeah. and i think that's kind of part of like having privacy right yep and so it's not like it's a terrible thing but right. when you live out there so you know and there's a few other like there's a family the helenthal family amazing farmers um, that grow grapes like right next, like, and they're p- our closest and they're contiguous to us. And then our vineyard manager has lived on the property for 30 years. He and his wife have raised their children there. And so, you know, and then the, the further out ranches, you know, as well. So it's a pretty tight community. Yeah. So, so like, um, you, would you spend like the whole summer up there or parts of the summer? Like, how did it work? So when we were in, you know, so in school, my dad had a house in Mill Valley. And so every two, you know, we go back and forth, but then he would take us up to the ranch on the weekends. Yeah. And um, I remember he used to have like an old Land Cruiser and he would soup so we could stay up there Sunday night, like super early Monday morning. Like, you know, I guess it would probably be like four in the morning. He would put like blankets and pillows and stuff in the back of the Land Cruiser and, you know, throw my sister and I sleeping, still sleeping <laughs> in there. And I have these amazing memories of being a child and you know, my dad driving and like us like snuggled in the back. It was like so comforting. And then we would stop at this truck stop in Petaluma and uh, and get breakfast. And then he would take us to school in Mill Valley. Um, and then, yeah, we would spend a lot of time on holidays and summers there. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. So y- um, what um, grapes did he originally plant? Uh, Riesling and Pinot Noir. Okay. Um, I love that. Why Riesling? Did, did have you ever? Was his so favorite white wine, and Pinot was his favorite red. Um, Johannes Lights came to visit us. Okay, he's a family friend. I'm sure you know Josie. Yeah. And um, <laughs> so Dad uh, grafted the Riesling over to Pinot in '89. Okay. Um, so there is no more Riesling at Hirsch, but he had like a bottle or two yep. of the '89 left in the cellar, and it had no label or anything. It just had in his like little like you know, spidery script. It had like 1989 written in a Sharpie on the foil of the neck. And he's like, oh, I'm going to like open this for Josie. And I'm like, oh, God, this is like one of like great like Riesling winemakers of the world. You're going to open this like, and anyways, like, so the wine was, you know, I mean, I will say it was still alive. This is pre-pandemic, maybe like five or six years ago. It wasn't, it had nothing else to recommend it except for the fact that it was still alive. Um, but then Josie told us this hilarious story about like trying to learn how to make Pinot Noir. And anyways, it was, it was, it was wonderful. The wine was not wonderful, but it was a wonderful <laughs> moment to share. I'm like, just to see my dad, like, so happy to be able to share. Well, his yeah. Family. I mean, that's really cool. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's, there's two ways you can do that. You'd be like, I want to show it to this incredible German winemaker. You're like, I would never, ever show this wine to a German winemaker. So, I, you know, he opted for the uh That's my father. Courageous he's so path. expansive. Yeah. 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 And he's interested in connection, you know, and community. He's not interested in, he doesn't. Father's it just it's, he doesn't care what people think of him, but not in the kind of like oh f you I don't yeah, care no, what you think you know like yeah. more in like a, he's really it's it's a very I think it's quite unusual I mean 
to really not care what peop other people think, but for it to not come from a negative place. Sure. You know? I agree. I mean, there's the, the whole cult of, uh, you know, there's a book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F. And yeah. But that's, there's an arrogance there, and it's not it's not a true, like I said, it's it's actually most people who say that it is a place of negativity. And it's funny you said that. I was on the gram and caught a clip of uh, Rick Rubin, who has a great book out now. I just got it. Um, recommended by Hardy Wallace. Shout out to Hardy. But um, he said, when you're a real, when you're an artist, the most important thing to do is um, not doubt yourself and to tune out the voice of other people, and not in a negative way. Just in like, I like your dad like planted Riesling because he felt that's what he wanted to express. Like it's like you want to not give a f because you're 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 grounded in what you're, the expression of what you're doing, not because you're negative and just selfish, right? So that's what it sounds like. I mean, first of all, he said, you know, no one wanted to be out there at the time. No one, you know, would have thought you could produce world-class wines there. Um, that takes this different kind of person who thinks differently. The <clears throat> So he planted in 80 and then kind of gave up his day job. A few, you know, he got the bug. and and But it really wasn't until 94 that anybody cared what he was doing. And so I'd say between like 84 and 94, he was working his ass off, toiling out there in the middle of nowhere, single. You know, he didn't, you know, he and my mom had separated. And I think it's, again, it's extraordinary to work so hard and nobody cares. Like, you know, when we were kids and we would go out to dinner with our dad and like the songs would be like so excited to see him and he would get all this attention and like, and they were like, oh my God, you know, David Hirsch. But that's not how it started. And I think, you know, it's like what they say, you know, the real work is done when no one's looking. It takes 10, 10 years to be an overnight success is another way they say that. Or, right. you know, it's a whole, yeah. like you said, the real, you know, it's, it's all the shots. You know, Kobe Bryant would, you know, practice for four hours every day yeah. before practice. Right, right. And no one was watching <laughs> No him. one's watching yeah, 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 yeah. So you're right, yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. kind of that commitment. So, yeah. all right, so we'll, get, we'll talk. <clears throat> Are you disappointed that I don't know anything about sports? Because that's your second sports reference. No, already. I'm not disappointed. <laughs> no, I, I, not at all. Um, you know, that's just, I just, I dropped the Isaiah Thomas episode and then yeah. LeBron just scored. So it's probably just bubbling around in my subconscious that's mind, cool. all the basketball stuff. I dig it. <laughs> I read an article by Kareem this morning, so I'm just... You're in the zone. And I'm not even a sports guy like that. I just... I'm a popular culture person, so yeah. I catch, like, you know, helps with the helps with the, helps with the pod. All right. So you grow up Northern California between the ranch, rugged Sonoma Coast, Mill Valley, and then it was time to go to college. Um, so you went to UPenn, but where, where else did you apply to, like, where, like... You know. I wanted to go to Columbia. Okay, because deck. <laughs> I was a total nerd, so academically I had always done really, really well. Mm -hmm. It was the first time that I didn't get something that I really wanted academically. And there were five kids. So this is hilarious. Like, here I am. I have not – like, I still remember this. Like, it just goes to show, like, how, <coughs> how much we remember failure. Mm -hmm. So there were five of us in my high school that applied early to Columbia, and I was the only one that didn't oh! get it. <laughs> Damn! It was, it was probably, that, uh, probably good for me. It's probably good for me. I know, but you know, but but that just like, I and this we I'm making up a story, but it's conversation. We're all gonna go to Columbia. <laughs> well, well, were like, you friends was, or are you competitors? Well, we were friends until then. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't 
didn't realize we were competitors. Yeah. No, I mean, obviously, it's not. That's not how college admissions work. But um, so I was a total brat about it, and I remember the like college counselor person at our school was like okay so you know what do you want to do and i was like ah, i don't care and she was like well like if you got into penn like would you go i was like ah, i don't care. Yeah, i was such a spoiled brat um and so i got into penn i went to penn and it was the best thing ever and i have like my best friends are the people that i met there and so what yeah. years so you were in penn what 97 to 01 yeah we were in philadelphia at the same time i was i lived in philadelphia i moved out of philadelphia oh we Are you from Philly? No, I'm from uh, Jersey Shore. Okay. Um, great town. Yeah. Well, a town called Long Branch where I'm from, but it's not great anymore. No, I mean uh, Philly. Oh, Philly. Sorry. Yeah, no. I don't know New Jersey that well. I don't know. We're going to get into Philly because, you know, it's, it, and I read somewhere you, you called it gritty. Um, <laughs> Philadelphia. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we just mentioned because I left in September 97. When you were starting school, I had left. Okay. I had lived down there for three years. I went to, see. I see your Philadelphia, and I raise you Camden. Okay, amazing. Okay, so I lived in Camden for three years, and in Philadelphia for one year. Amazing. I went to Rutgers Camden for law awesome. school, so I spent a lot of time in Philadelphia. Dated a bunch of women who went to UPenn. Um, so, but so first of all, that's another thing. Like, it's not warm in Northern California winter, but like, what was it like your first winter? Like when you were like. Philadelphia. I mean, we were parting so hard. Who knew how cold it was? <laughs> I mean, I was so buttoned down in high school. And like, I mean, senior year, I became a little bit of a stoner, but like, I was so buttoned down. And then I got to college and I was just like, I don't know. I just, I had a lot of fun. As you should. Yeah. As you I should. don't, I mean, I remember the first time it snowed when we were there and I had one of my best friends. <clears throat> Mirasham, Mirasham Sham, um, shout out to Shimmy. Um, she'd never seen snow before, and uh, we were having a good time that night. Let's just say, and so we went out in the middle of the quad and we made snow angels, and we we're, were unaffected by the cold. Let we me just were say feeling that no right. pain. We were feeling no pain. <laughs> we, were feeling, we were feeling no cold. Yeah, you can dump right in there. Okay, great. Um, yeah, I love that. And so, um, you know, we got to do the Philly thing. So, when you were at Penn, did you know about that great? Philadelphia lexicon called the John, the J A W N. No, but it's like a new thing. It's, it's like, well, it's like now, trending. Now, 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 yeah, now yes. it's yes. Explain it to me. It's like a catch-all. So you'd be like, oh man, that's that. Um, and say so like, oh, you heard that? You tried that Hearst Vineyards John, so it could be a wine, or like, oh man, or like somebody tries to uh, somebody tries to run a game, and you're like, oh, he thought I was gonna fall through a dummy John. It it just becomes it's like I love it. It it's like a catch-all. They just throw it in everywhere, and obviously. The roots are from Philadelphia, um, and you know they've used it for years. It's probably kind of why it has slipped into you know being. Did on you side. know it when you were there? Yeah. Oh, that, oh yeah. Like that was yeah. yeah. Like I'm, I was I, you know for first you know couple of weeks when I was even in Camden because that's South Jersey. It's the same thing. I was like, so what the fuck is this John thing? Yeah. And I was like, oh okay, I see that. Okay. I think the reality is is that when you're at a school like Penn, like you're in a bubble, which I think is like kind of one of the problems with, with UPenn and institutions like that in a city like Philly. I mean, it's, I just went back and to see a, a very dear friend of mine from Penn and she's very progressive. She's involved in, in education in Philly and which is deeply problematic. Uh, public that's, school that's, system. that's why it's so, you should watch that TV series. Uh, oh, something elementary, Abbott elementary. It's won all these Emmys. It's about public schools in Philadelphia. 
I mean, it, it's making light of it, but it is bringing the problems with like how right. gnarly it is right. for the teachers. Yeah, and the and she, my friend, was explaining to me some of the ill effects that an institution the size of UPenn has on a community. I mean, they, and they like, of course, like have all their like community initiatives and that kind of stuff. But it has a such an impact on a community. It displaces people. I mean, the housing situation, all of that. It's it's uh, and when you're there as an undergrad, you're just you know doing your privileged thing. You yeah. have no idea. Um, but it was very uh, it's eye opening. It's complex, it's complex. because yeah. I I and then also I lived in New Haven, so New Haven has some situation. the The, the issue becomes um, so like UPenn is probably the largest employer in Philadelphia. Uh, that could very well yeah, be true. I probably, be they're probably yeah. between the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. And and um, so, you know, you say it's it having an impact, but but if it were going like as bad as things are, if you pull right. an institution All those jobs. out. Yeah. Now, I don't know how it is with Penn, but in New Haven, Yale doesn't pay taxes and owns about so 70 percent. Yeah. They own about 70 percent of town. Right. Same but thing. again, New Haven is the largest employer. Yeah. Yale's the largest employer in New Haven. Yeah. But. I just did a talk. I don't day. believe in triple trickle down economics. Yeah. No, I don't. I think I, don't, I, think, I, don't, I, think, I think these institutions should pay taxes. No, I I don't. I'm not saying either, but I'm I'm just saying that yeah. that's they're like you know, but like no, and I, I I hear that, and I know that that's not what you're saying. Yeah. I just mean like that's great, and they can do that, and they can. That's pay what taxes. I'm saying. That's why it's complex, yeah. right? Yeah. Because because I think sometimes, and then you have billions of dollars. You didn't know what you were going to talk about. You have billions of dollars in endowment. And you're not paying taxes, and you have 100%. you have all this poverty and failing public schools yeah. in both those cities. Yeah. So, but the the real point I was making was, I did a lecture at Yale last mm -hmm. week, and Yale and you like. Did you, you so you went to Yale undergrad? No, I okay. went to. No, I'm an idiot. I went to a state Fancy. school. Um, no, I wish. I I, I would. I, but I now would, you're I, giving I, lectures I, there. I, 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 I like I, that. Exactly. Now I'm giving lectures there. <laughs> And actually, they, they're gonna they're gonna make me a fellow. <laughs> Are they gonna give you an honorary degree? No, I, it's, but it's, maybe, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Not, yeah, but, but I am definitely gonna get a fellow, which may, like, means like That's I get awesome. like I like get I get a card and I get into all like the Yale clubs. I um, I but I was it. there on that campus because I went to a state school, Southern Connecticut. So I, you know, like like it's like the UC of Connecticut. So, you know, um, um, and I and and like I was staying in this guest house on the campus. I'm like, they're like those things are fortresses. Like Yale is like a fort. It's like literally has big towers, like yeah. the gates. I was like, yeah. I'm like, and I lived in New Haven. New Haven has some serious crime issues, but like those kids are like la la la. Like I'm like, wow, you're right. Like in UPenn, same thing. It's out in West Philadelphia. Yes. Born and raised. Yes, indeed. Um, <laughs> and all around it, you see, um, you know, urban decay. Yeah. Um, and also. You're too young this, but the move uh, when they firebombed out in West Philadelphia, that was near yeah. Penn. Like yeah. people don't understand yeah. that. So, but you're at Penn. You're um, so we have to talk Philadelphia because you know Philadelphia. So you probably stayed within the walls a lot. But um, favorite cheesesteak? I don't like cheesesteaks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like shutting the pod down. Who doesn't like cheese tea? I'm not okay. Uh, so are you? Were, so you're not a. Uh, please explain. I'm not putting words in your mouth. I'm just not a big sandwich person. <sighs> Can I tell you why? Yes. Okay. Please. I think the bread is like a waste of space. Like oh. just give me the meat, give me the cheese, give me the sauce. I don't need the bread. Wow. I don't know. I just and like I. It's just not my thing. 
I wanted to hear like I did love the 76ers while I was in town there you go there's a pro Philly pro sports thing I think they were good while I think Iverson came in right when I was there and all it was it was you'd see he had those amazing braids and all the little kids in town had their braids done like him it was and there was just such a good energy in the city people were so stoked to be winning and I had a couple there were a couple people at that were in our friend group at Penn that were locals and so they kind of introduced us to the magic and it was a pretty it was a special time yeah Jasmine has lost street cred because she ain't do the, the cheesesteak joint like I wanted to hear like drunken late nights going to Billy Bob's or we made a run down to South Street that we would go to that I just I mean honestly and I you know I would eat them but it wasn't my thing and what about like uh, Philly bars? Did you go down to the Irish pub and all that stuff? Did so you do that? I'm so bad with names, but there was a place that we would go to uh, that was uh, actually like west of school that had like an amazing jukebox. Um, and there were a couple places that, w- that we would go to, but you know, we mostly were like you know on campus. I spent ju- I spent junior year abroad, um, so kind of you know didn't didn't do anything around campus then. But yeah, I mean. I'm a I'm a bad I'm a bad temporary Philadelphia resident. You're bad temporary Philadelphian. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I I was so into being at school and being with my friends and just kind of, you know, I have to be honest. Like in high school, there were some amazing people that I went to high school with, but I just I never really had. You find your friends in college. You find your friends in college, and I think I was really doing that that bonding, like to have peers that I could have fun with that. I could have an intellectually engaging mm-hmm. um, interaction with um, and that I loved and we could go on adventures. To, I mean, that was really what I was exploring in college. No, I love you it. Know? And then, you know, I went to, I went, I did school year abroad in Japan. And so that was, a, I would say the other strong theme of my time there was just really getting into Asian studies and Japanese studies and, and, you know, all of that. Did you have a major like, or some or some part of your degree was in that? Uh, what was your I major? The, the name of the major is uh, Asian and Middle Eastern Studies. Okay, but my concentration was in Japanese, so that's why I, that's why I went there junior year. So what was what was Japan like? Uh, you know, Japan. I mean, it's one of the most amazing places. I will say though, like I spent eleven months there. I, I did school, and then I did a summer internship. And I remember the last week I was there, I was in the grocery store just, you know, picking up some food. And I just had this experience of like, oh, my God, I'm probably like the only non-Japanese person in here. I just this like feeling of alienation. So it's like even after 11 months and speaking pretty good Japanese at that time, you still feel at least I felt like a sense of separateness and not necessarily in a bad way. I just it's so different. Right. I mean, when you talk about being a minority, I mean, like like most of us never experienced that like legit. Well, certainly not as a white person in America. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, we no. have no concept. No. Um, and, I, you know, I think people want the same things all around the world at some fundamental level, right? They want a good life. They want their kids to be safe. They want their kids to have a better life than them, like all that kind of stuff, right? And that's, of course, how it is in Japan as well. But then, you know, the culture is so different. Um, the language, the whole way. And, and you know, I, th- I would say also, like, even at, at that time I was living in Osaka, like, even in a major city like Osaka, like, they don't see a lot of foreigners, too. So there's also, like, a lot of, like, staring and, like, curiosity. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just you are, like, very much a minority. Um, and and that can be really interesting. And, you know, I think we can learn a lot in discomfort. Yeah. You know. 
right. So you come back, do your broad, you you uh, do your last year at Penn. Um, you don't. I, was, I, I but I just like. Did you ever go to the Penn relays at least? No, I didn't know sports oh, things while I was there. I think I went to one sporting event and then I was like, I don't never need to do this again. <laughs> I was like part of the like the hippie crowd. You know, I had yeah. my like my like um like I you know, my clothes I'd bought on Hate Street back in San Francisco, like my fake fur coat. Like all the sorority girls are walking around, they're all wearing the exact same thing, yeah. like the yeah, black yeah, pants yeah. and like all that the whole nine thing. West shoes. And I had like my yeah. green corduroy pants and my, you know, fake fur leopard print. You know, through rose-colored like glasses. I was like, exactly, like all that kind of thing. <laughs> I, that was my crowd. That was my, that was my crowd of people. We definitely didn't do anything like sports related, except yeah, we would watch the Sixers and stuff. But yeah. What about music? Because when I was down there, I saw the Roots before they were the Roots. I saw the Roots at TLA in '94. It was one of the best shows ever. Like, they were still playing a lot. Like, the music scene was crazy in Philadelphia during your yeah. time. Did you go see any live music? Or you anything? know. It's great that you asked. So um, more like jam bandy stuff. Yep. And there was a the the disco biscuits. Yeah. You know, I, so yeah, they were like they were like biscuits. one one year ahead of me, and a bunch of my friends like worked for them, and so we would get these school buses with uh, nitrous tanks on them. Completely <laughs> honest, and, like go out to their shows and go out to other shows, and I had you know a ton of friends that like we go to fish shows and stuff like that. I was never like again like I would go I'd have fun. I, you know the music could be great. I mean not like super into like jam band music, but um. That was awesome, and I was just, yeah, I mean, that, definitely that. You know, the first time I saw the Roots, was in New York City. Okay. I had no idea who they were. I was, <coughs> I, you know, and it was actually after college. I had moved to Amsterdam, and um, there was a Fat Beats in Amsterdam, and I was super into hip-hop at the time, and I would go to the Fat Beats and, like, buy all this stuff, and, like, and I came to New York, and um, actually, no, I saw the Roots for the first time in Amsterdam, Nice. Maybe I saw them in f- in New York before that, but um, yeah. The day I moved to Amsterdam, there was a Roots concert. Shut up. Yeah, and wow. um, I had had like obviously a very long day because you're moving, blah blah blah, and like the sol- show was sold out. But I was able to scalp a ticket for like no money. And then after the show, got, I mean, I was by myself. After the show, got I met some people, and they like took me to this sick hip hop bar. Um, and then that was kind of like how I learned about like what was going on in the hip hop scene in, in Amsterdam. So I saw a lot of hip hop when I was in Amsterdam. I will say something that's maybe. You know, not a great place to see music in Amsterdam because the bands are so stoked to be in a place where marijuana is legal that they're often like, oh, way they're too bang- high yeah, oh my god. Well. I, was, I was gonna say they're probably <laughs> and 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 you know uh, things have changed now here, um, right? But you know the cannabis cup was there, like like yeah. like like. Like yeah, now we have all these crazy strains. There was like like five. This strains. is like in the early 2000s. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Where that was like the only. Place yeah, I mean, there, there, was still, get, like, there was still like five strains. Only five strains. Yeah, you know, the they crazy had, chronic. They had yeah. the crazy shit yeah. going on over there. Yeah. And um, oh, that's so funny. You said that uh, another. It was on Instagram. There's a, Ch- a Chappelle clip about I was smoking weed with some rappers. <laughs> he said, and. I don't know if you know about rap, but their weed is really strong. So he said to- how he bombs, so I could totally see <laughs> yes. everybody's coming over, thinking they they can smoke and ha- hold their shit. And now, then the then, Roots were great. Yeah. I mean, they're pros. But, like, there were some other bands I saw I was like, or some other groups I saw I was like, ooh, you're too high. That's I was like, why does that go? Oh, they're too high. <laughs> so. <laughs> happens to the best of us. Besides the copious amounts of marijuana and hash that are available in Amsterdam, uh, how'd you end up? How'd you end up there? Uh, job, work? Well, so after after college, I wanted to live abroad again, but I did not want to go back to Asia. I just I want to do something kind of in the middle. 
my stepmother's from the Czech Republic, okay. and she introduced me to some folks in Prague. I got a job working for a company in Prague, and then um, I lived there for a couple years, and there was a project that we were working on in Amsterdam. And I was going to Amsterdam all the time, and I just had this epiphany. It was like on an April day. It was like one of the only days, you know, Amsterdam has terrible weather, but like it happened to be beautiful that day, and yep. I just thought, I'm going to move here. And uh, and I talked to my boss, and he was like, no problem. You can move. It's easy commute. It's like an hour and a half to Prague. Um, That's the thing about Europe. People don't realize how close how, yeah. places are in Europe. Easy. Yeah, easy. And, and flights like Ryanair, like round trip, like 60 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was still had like a, like I could still get like student. Are you rail pass? Okay. No, or I would fly oh, okay. on Czech Airlines. Yeah. And it was like, I could get like tickets for like 140 euros, <laughs> like round trip. My boss was so stoked. Um, but actually it's funny. I stopped smoking weed when I moved to Amsterdam because it was so strong. It was like, you know, that's actually like to that point, it was just. Um, and yeah, I was working a lot. I was really enjoying my, I was working like, and I was working from home. I was like very focused and, um, yeah. So, but I'd go to a lot of shows and enjoy the city, spend a lot of time alone at the beginning and then started to make friends. It was, it was kind of awesome. I mean, Prague was amazing. I had an incredible, cause I, through my work, I had met so many people mm -hmm. and, Prague is this amazing, you know, it was also kind of early days in Prague, and so it was very dynamic, um, but also a little bit exhausting, <laughs> to be <laughs> honest. When I moved to Amsterdam, I had like a little alone time for like six months. It felt really good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyways. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? It's probably a good time to take a quick break. We'll take a quick break, and um, we're going to find out <coughs> if Jasmine has started smoking weed again when we come back. So hang on, everybody. We'll be right back. Did you know that one out of every five bottles of collectible wines is a fake? Rare Liquid has solved this problem with a tech platform that provides unprecedented trust and transparency for next-gen wine collectors. Working directly with iconic artisans, they verify each bottle's provenance at its source, then track its rarity, ownership, storage, and transfer history on the blockchain. Rare Liquid members get exclusive access to these verified rare wines and can buy, store, and pimp their collections on the Rare Liquid platform. Membership includes physical seller storage as well as cloud sellers where you can display and trade bottles frictionlessly online without ever having to move the bottle until it's ready to be consumed. And because Rare Liquid tracks these on the blockchain, for the first time, artisans get a residual payment every time one of their bottles transfers ownership. Rare Liquid's game-changing tech creates a safe and frictionless experience for next-gen collectors while fairly rewarding iconic artisans for their craft. Rare Liquid membership is by invite only, but luckily I can help. I have a limited number of these invitations available for you, my listeners. And if you're interested in learning more about Rare Liquid, please reach out. You can hit me up on Instagram, at BlackWineGuy, or even better, send me an email, BlackWineGuy at gmail.com, and drop Rare Liquid in the subject line. Okay, we're back. Um, so after Amsterdam, you came back and went to New York. Is that correct? Or where'd you? Yeah. Okay. I moved to New York. Okay. Yeah. I, I'd lived abroad for five years and I just, I had this realization that at that point, you know, five years out of college, it's like, where do you want to make your life? Where are you going to build your community? Where are you going to build your career? And I wanted, I realized I want to go home. I want to go back to the U.S. Okay. And so what were you doing? In, and by the way, um, before we ask the answer, so now I have the 2021 Bohan Dylan Pinot Noir. 
Tell me about this one because it's really delicious. 12.9, you know, and it's, deli- it's beautiful. Thank just you. wonderful fruit. And Thank you. So, yeah, so tell me about yeah, this. Yeah, this is the wine that my dad originally conceived of as kind of our answer to a great village wine. Okay. So it's inexpensive. It's like 40 bucks. Um, it's one third. It's the only wine we make that's not 100% Hirsch Pinot. Okay. So it's, got, it's about one third Hirsch, one third Hellenthal. And this is the first vintage that we bought fruit from Charlie Heinz. It's one third Heinz as well. Yeah. Cool, cool. Um, so, so you wanted to move back home, and um, like, what type of work were you doing in Prague? Like, what type of job did you have in New York when you came back? Is this marketing, advertising, or what type of things do you do? What so, were you doing? So, when I came back to the U.S., I I had this idea that I wanted to work in finance, which I don't know where I got that idea from. So I. You know, had a lot of friends that had gone to Penn and all this kind of thing that oh were yeah. like in finance. So I was like, you know, I just I did that networking thing yep. and um, I got offered a job at JP Morgan Private Bank. I worked really hard to get it and then I started work there and I was like, I hate the this. <laughs> and um, yeah, it was a it was a it was not not the right position, for, not the right thing for me. But I had worked so hard to get it. You're like, you don't want to like, you know, mm-hmm. admit or give up. Um, but, w- you know, because of my dad i was i was lucky enough to to get to meet like a bunch of people in the restaurant industry a bunch of collectors i met michael skernick you know even though i wasn't working in the wine industry and so you know when i when i wasn't working i would you know go to you know terroir wine bar and like you know drink wine and like hang out and go to tastings and i just love and like go to restaurant i just loved that so much and i remember one night i was i'd met bernie son do you know Bernie? Mm-mm. Master Sam. He was uh, the wine guy for Jean Georges forever. Okay. Yeah. yeah so he was like the beverage for Jean Georges. I was out in California when a lot of these OGs yeah. were on. Were he's, a, he's an OG. Yeah. And he's a, he's a really remarkable person. He, so I'm complaining to him about how much I hate my job at JP Morgan. He's like, uh, you, know, you need to quit complaining. Like, what, you know, <laughs> quit your whining. <laughs> what do you want to do? And I was like, well, I love food and wine. And Bernie's like, you should go work for your dad. And I was like, I can't work for my dad. That's like, my dad's like a hard ass. And, it's like lame to go work for your father. You know what I mean? That seems, and he was like, he said to me, he's like, you know, your dad's doing something really important. You should go home and help him. And it was like, he gave me permission. I needed somebody to tell me it was okay mm-hmm. to give up on this job that I thought I really wanted. And to also to go home, which and going home feels is like going tough. backwards. Yeah, yeah. Going home is tough. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah I, I hear you. Um, so that's a great story. Like, and that's what they say. It's always right. The answer is right in front of your face, right? But then, like, I love what you said. Like, sometimes we need permission from someone else, right? Yeah. So, what was that conversation like? Hey, Dad, or did you fly home and call? Hey, Dad. Uh, like, you know, he tried to get me to come work for him in when I was graduating from college. Okay. Because he. <clears throat> For the first 20 years of the vineyard's existence, he uh, he sold all the grapes. We didn't make any wine until 02. Mm. So I was graduating in, o- in 01. My dad was planning to open the winery. And um, he uh, he um, tried to get me to come home and work for him and help him. And I was like, absolutely not. Like, I'm just finished college. Like, <laughs> I'm going to go like, do nuts? my own thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he had every few years he would, like, ask if I wanted to come back and work for him. And so, you know, 08, though, you know, the world was kind of in. It was, like, you know, crazy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Crazy times. Um, so the economy was not great. We had planted a bunch of new vineyards. We had a ton of wine to sell. Mm-hmm. So it was very challenging time. But as somebody said to me, someone, one of my, you know, contacts that I made 
through working in, in banking, they said, you know, you learn more in a down market than you learn in an up market. My dad also loves to say, he's like, all the problems start in the good times. You know, you get too complacent. So, you know, I, I, we, we went from 05, we made a thousand cases of wine, mm -hmm. low yielding vintage, mm -hmm. our new vines hadn't come into production. 06, we made 6,000 cases of wine. And that came into the market in 08, 08 when yeah. the world was ending, financially the world was ending. And I had, you know, had to build our distribution network, had to, like, we were like 15% direct, like, which is like not really sustainable for a winery like us. So um, it was very challenging. I mean, I traveled constantly and was on the road all the time, um, but I think it was the best education, you know, in terms of understanding distribution and sales, so. But I really had no experience. I mean, you know, it's nepotism, you know. I mean, you know. I, I used to work with kids, um, and I this story, I remember I, I would bring in guest speakers, and this, this and I, the story just spoke so much. So there was a, I had this attorney, I think it was like the city attorney for New Haven or something, you know. And he had went to Harvard. He had went to, he had went to, he went to Columbia undergrad, like where you wanted mm -hmm. to go. And then he went to Harvard Law School, and after this was like when Obama was president. So like, mm -hmm. and he had just he was like a one L when Michelle Obama threw. But anyway, here's a guy who went to Columbia, and then Harvard Law School. And you know what he said? He said every job I ever got is because I knew somebody. Mm. Right? I was like, that's profound, and people need to understand building their network. Like, yeah. So I mean, there's nothing. You don't have to. I mean, you had a network because of what your dad did. I mean, and, yeah. you know, and where you went to school, and that's that's one of the things. You know, um, you know, I mean, I'm, wine selling grapes is it's relationships, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, the world is really relationship driven yeah. on one, you know, on one level. So, yeah. so there's nothing to, you know, you don't have to say nepotism. I mean, it is, but it isn't. It's not like. Well, not I think I think you know, you're. I was given the opportunity because I'm my father's child, yeah. and then it is a question of what you do with it. Right. But you know. We are privileged in so many ways that we don't even realize. You know, when my dad had his accident and he lost the ability to walk, he told me later that we don't even realize how identified we are with being a person that can get up and walk. Like, you just get up and walk. And losing that, it's like a death. In fact, people that have accidents like him and lose function like he does, like, they send them to the same kind of counseling that they send people to when, like, when they lose, like, a loved one. Um, so I think it, like, it's important to examine that stuff and to be honest and we can be proud of ourselves and, and, and our accomplishments. Even we can hold both, you know what I mean? Um, and there's a lot of really talented people who would not have would, you know, if they're, if they were given that opportunity, they could do, you know, the same thing, but aren't necessarily given the opportunity, you know? So it's, it's a, it's a mixed bag, you know? It's all the things. The world is the world is complex. It's all the, the world is, yeah. It's all you know. <laughs> you know right. you gotta, you gotta say, wait, right? yeah, yeah. We can make waves like, like you know like listen. It ain't it ain't just one John or it's it's a combination of a whole bunch of different Johns. It's a mixed bag of Johns. Yeah, it's a mixed bag of Johns. <laughs> Doesn't sound great. I know. I was like, I, I'm like, I'm gonna <laughs> like, practice. I, I like that. So. <laughs> um, I'm trying another wine. Uh, what's the second Pinot I have here? That's the Ration Ridge. 2019. Spicy on the that's, nose. Yeah, that's the first vintage that I took over the winemaking, the 2019. I wanted to bring something from that vintage. Okay. And this is from a section of the vineyard that is, it's a little bit younger. It's like 20 years old. It's a little bit younger by our, our parameters. And um, it's just had, it has this amazing energy and, and uh, 
and uh, you know texture on the palate and it's it's forward but at the same time it's like got this like restraint I don't know I'm there's there's good tension in it yeah exactly it's yeah. the energy yep. yeah mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah um, so backing up to you come you know you come home you go to work you're in sales and marketing you're out on the road share about that um was there a point when did you kind of because i read somewhere that like you began to kind of learn more about the winemaking in the land and like what 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 was kind of like your evolution into like what kind of piqued your interest on the production side versus the sales and marketing side so <clears throat> my father was insistent that i come home every harvest for a couple weeks and work um and except for one year i always worked in the vineyards or just doing menial stuff like sorting grapes um but you know harvest is not farming you know harvest is harvest um it is winemaking but like what the vineyard t- crew is doing is not it's the end of the farming, right? Um, so it was really after, so my dad had this accident in 2014, Mother's Day, like May of 2014. And um, he, prior to that, had wor- was working six days a week, you know, in the vineyards. In fact, he was, it was on a Saturday and they were building compost piles when the accident happened. Like he was, he was working on a Saturday. And um, so that was when I really started to spend more time in the vineyards. Not that like, our vineyard manager was not, t- I mean, and he really kept the ship going. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to take away from, but I felt like, okay, I need, you know, and all of our grower relations and all the stuff that my dad had done, like I took, I took that, took that over with a lot of help from my team. And um, I'll say too, that even before that, I had always been so, You know, I am my father's daughter very much, and, you know, watching him do the farming and kind of not understanding it and being overwhelmed by the scale of... So our ranch is a 1,000 acres. Planted is only 72. Mm. Besides the farming, which is insanely complex because we're on top of a fault line, you know, there's so much diversity within the, the vineyard blocks. But besides that, it's just taking care of the ranch, like you know, we're off the grid for water. We have an insanely complex, you know, water so irrigation system, you know, taking care of the roads, erosion, all of it, the, the tree, you know, taking care of the, the trees, the forestry, all that kind of stuff. And I just was like, oh, like, I've been worried my whole life. Like, who's going to take care of that when my dad is gone? And then also, who's going to take care of the farming? So I was always more focused and more, e- whether I was doing the work or not, you know, because early on, I was just so busy traveling all the time. So I wasn't doing the work, but it was in the back of my head, like, who is going to do this, you know? And then also, you know, my father, he's a farmer, not a winemaker. So it's like I wanted to be like my dad. You know, I wanted to to understand the farming. So anyways, that was really – so 2014, though, was when I really started to get more hands-on with it. Um, And then the winemaking, I never really did much in the winery except, you know, tasting, management, blah, blah, Mm -hmm. blah. Um, But our winemaker left after the 2018 harvest. He'd only been with us for three years. And I just was like, I just can't hire another winemaker. I just can't have the insecurity of that. Mm-hmm. And um, my boyfriend, Michael Cruz, he's a amazing winemaker. And he told me, he's like, I will teach you how to make wine. And I will not let you fail. 
I was like, like great, great, now it's your problem. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, in seriousness, though, when someone that you really trust and love says that they'll support you in that way, you feel like, you okay, I could do this. And then my dad, when I, we came to him with this plan, you know, he trusted and supported that choice. And we hired some really good people to help in the cellar. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was it – w- 2019 was – a great vintage for a first-time winemaker. It was pretty easygoing, but um, I was a stress case for sure. So. <laughs> You're so cute. Um, <laughs> so, 08 was the first vintage you right, or you guys released, right? So, 02. 02. 02. It's okay. And your father had been a grower. Correct. A farmer. Um, but the grapes were planted to be site-specific. So, Share with people some of the people that were able to source grapes from Hirsch yeah. prior to you guys, um, and, I, and you still sell some for some fruit. Yes. Right? Okay. So, but who were some of those, those people who were sourcing fruit from 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 the from the ranch? So, <coughs> Kistler, William Selium, Litteri, Fela, Suduri, Rocchioli, Flowers, Whetstone, Whitcraft. Um, Patricia Green up in Oregon bought fruit from us for a little while. A lot of folks. A lot of different amazing winemakers. They put the vineyard on the map, you know, by putting Hirsch on their labels, you know. And we also learned a lot from them. We still learn from our fruit clients, you know. Um, Because some of them are also amazing farmers, you know, like Ted Lemon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... For, you know, I have a, this large swath of listeners. Thank you for being a listener, by the way. So I appreciate that. Um, tell them what, what you mean by site-specific. It's wine that tastes like it comes from somewhere, somewhere specific. And it doesn't have to even, like, it doesn't have to be single vineyard. It can just be like, oh, this wine. And you don't even have to know anything about wine to be like, oh, this wine is, there's something. Right. And, you know, it, c- it doesn't have to even be single. It can be like a little little spot on the map, like a little village or a little town or something. That, But it's specific to that place. And so, like, it's funny. Like, Hirsch, we want the wines that we make to taste like they come from Hirsch. I mean, that's like what I was talking about with the rosé. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to make a rosé that tastes like it could come from the south of France. I love s- rosés from the south of France, but I don't live and farm and make wine in the south of france i want the wines to taste like they're from here um it's funny like when people we don't we're not open to the public but you know we do occasionally host visitors and stuff when people come there they're like they don't have to know anything about wine they're like oh i get it like you see the ocean you feel the breeze maybe it's foggy like you see the landscape and it's like the wines the wines come alive yeah yeah and and i think that's like once you know um, once you get like in your palate, your pa- your memory palate, what some t- like it's undeniable. Like I remember one time I had a bottle Chardonnay. It was a producer uh, who who's out of Paso Robles, but like, and there's not a lot of Chardonnay in Paso Robles. But anyway, but like, you know, it just the Chardonnay said like California or said Central yeah. Coast on it, right? And I was drinking. I was like, I was like, this is Benicito fruit, right? So I messed. I'm like, he's like, yeah, I. I 
couldn't put Benicito on this label, but but like it was like you said, like yeah. I knew like there, there was characters that like yes. this tastes like a Benicito Chardonnay, yes. yeah. and and so I I know what you're talking about when you say that, um, and those are heavy hitters. I mean, you know, we're talking Steve Kistler because we're talking yeah. oh my God, I mean Rocchioli, William Sully. I mean these are icons. Yeah, Whitcraft. Yeah, shout out to Drake taking over from, but that was his Dad Chris yeah. back in the day. Yes. Chris Whitcraft, his father makes amazing Pinot. Yeah. The '94 Whitcraft Hirsch Pinot Noir. I think I had. I think I had one of the best wines ever. I think I had that one. Because yeah. yeah. I worked. Uh, I worked at Acker. You probably heard that over the yes. course. And uh, my buddy Cliff. I don't know if you know Cliff, but Cliff went to UCSB and he brought Whitcraft to New York. Amazing. And that was like '97. So I'm sure we had that '94 something. And I lived out yeah. in Santa Barbara, so I know I've had that wine. And it was just anyway. But yeah, I mean that, and that's like one of those things where like people who make amazing wines, and I mean, there's not a lot of them, but but people don't know who Chris Whitcraft is by and by in the wine industry. Yeah. You know, they should. They should. Yeah. You know. They should. Um. Okay, so you take over. It's 2019, nerve wracking. You got Michael Cruz, got Michael Cruz in your back pocket, literally. <laughs> 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 um. What was uh what was your biggest challenge? Like what was your like what what was your biggest challenge that first year? My insecurity. <laughs> <laughs> My fear of failure. My fear that people would figure out that I didn't know what I was doing. But it was so obvious, you know. Like I mean with my team. Yeah. You know. My team taught me a lot about 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 that, you know. And I'm lucky that they stuck with me. You yeah, know. you said someone's lived there for like over 30 years. Like you're Well, in, Averado. Yeah. Robledo, yeah. our vineyard manager. Vineyard he came manager. in he actually came in 89 to help graft the Riesling over to Pino. Okay. And then he never left, thank God. Yeah. He's uh Averado is uh I mean Yeah, he's a uh, the heart and soul. Yeah, tell know? people cuz I'm I I've had a lot of people on but just there was a, there was this opening. I mean, I've actually had a vineyard manager on that was great with Ruben Solorzano down in Santa Barbara. But like, yeah, I saw for, that for people. Tell them like, because at one level, and when you're making site specific wines, you're trying to be as minimalist as possible. You're letting the, the, the grapes and the like. Yeah. How important is having the right vineyard manager? I mean, it's everything. It's everything. I think. Um, you know. When you, w I don't care what industry you're in, if you have somebody that works for you that acts like they're an owner, that person is gold. You know, that cares that much. Mm -hmm. And you, that's Averado, you know? And he loves my dad. He has so much respect for my father. And he, he has been there throughout our evolution. And he has helped, he has worked side by side with my father where we, wh while they have figured out how to farm in a place that nobody else has ever farmed in. Um, you know, Hirsch was a sheep ranch. It had never been planted to vineyards. So he and my dad, you know, side by side, thank you, had, um, you know, they figured that out together. I don't know. You'd have to ask Averado how he likes working with me. <laughs> I think he's I'm still there. Real, I mean, I'm probably you know, a real pain in his no, ass. <laughs> If he's been there, he's seen you grow up and, uh, you know, stuff like, you know, it's like, there's like. Yeah, he has. So, you know, there's, yeah. you know, um, like. Like when I had Pete on, that's why I had Ruben on. Like, is they're like family. Like when you have somebody yeah. that long, and like you said, you said like, and that's funny because uh, I have worked for people who like didn't like the fact that like like if I'm working for you and like and I'm passionate about it, I'm gonna act like it's my business. So I might yeah. say, 
and then I'll say like, um, if you are you saying I too much? I'm like that's because I'm taking full responsibility. Don't you want people to take full responsibility 100%. for stuff? Yeah. <laughs> Not like your ego, like like yeah. you know, like like you know. But um, that's really cool because then it, I would have to assume it allows you like to have that handled, like then you can it it just makes one less thing for you to have to deal with, right? And you can just well, to be honest, it's collaborative, right? The farming is the farming is you know, where the winemaking starts. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, so with, I, I defer to Averado on, on, you know, most yeah. of the farming decisions, especially like at this time of year, the pruning and all that kind of stuff. But like when it comes to the growing season stuff, you know, we work, we work really closely together. And I really, I really want him to be involved in tasting and 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 understanding because the, the wines are the feedback from the farming right mm -hmm. so i want him to come in i want to like be like look remember like when i asked you last harvest to pick this little section of seven separately and it was a pain in the ass you had to get extra bins blah blah, blah. now taste it and taste it compared to the rest of the block and like you can see and he's like and and he's so proud that that is what we accomplished and so then he wants to do that next you know mm -hmm. what i mean so mm -hmm. it's like if it's um it's a group effort Totally. Um, and the, like another thing too is like what you said about like I like these are not my wines. These are our wines. Mm -hmm. These are wines that were made by a team of people mm -hmm. and I couldn't you can you can't do something like this on your own, you know? So yeah. She got all deep. She's like, Yeah. Um so I was thinking about my team. How that's awesome. Right? <laughs> Shout out to your whole team. Shout out to the whole team at Hirsch. Yes. Um So 2019, so it's like your, you just finished like your fourth vintage, fifth vintage? Yeah, fourth. Um, what has it been like? So 2020, smoke, were you guys any issue? Yeah, yeah like half the wines were affected. So. And you guys are out there. Like what, it, what, like it's just the. Yeah, I mean, that's the crazy thing about smoke is you can be really far from the fires and still, it can still have impact. So yeah, that was my second vintage. Um, but we, you know, I told the team that we're gonna make the best wines that we can. We don't know what's gonna happen, so we're not gonna like we're not gonna worry about whether wine smokes here or not. We're just gonna make the best wines that we can. We made some modifications to the winemaking, but mm -hmm. basically, we I said we have the same goals that we have any harvest because you know you're starting out thinking oh shit, like none of these wines might be good. And that's mm -hmm. not a great place to start from. You have to start from the place of like, all these wines could be great. Yeah. And I'm gonna put my full effort in. And my team did, they like rallied and we, you know, we had it, we ended up having like a really great harvest. Now half the wines had to be, you know, but uh, that doesn't, I mean, what, what matters is that we, we did, we tried our best, you know, as the Japanese say, gambarimasu, you know. I meant to, uh, thank you for that. <laughs> It's like the best expression. We don't really have an expression like that in English. It basically just means we're all gonna work really hard together. I know, I know. Like uh, different countries have all these great expressions that don't translate to English. Exactly. Like, and, and we we just have like, well, we got John. So. <laughs> we got John. <laughs> yeah, but like John doesn't really mean anything. <laughs> it's a catch-all. <laughs> I know. I know. That's what we have. We have we have bad not meaning bad. We got dope not meaning. I mean, we, it, we don't have like, like, yeah. Like when they translate some of those, like the horse and the donkey are friends. Why? What does that mean? Yeah. But but in their language, that means it's some that, shit. What language is that from? <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but I'm just, you know. 
it's off the top of my head. Um, I have this now. I have this East Ridge. Yeah, so it's another one of the 2019s um, from a really old part of the vineyard that has okay, a disease how old, oh. called phylloxera. Oh, oh, um, I've heard of we've heard of that. <laughs> yeah, so. Um, just, I don't, you said you have a, a listeners from a yeah. wide range. So phylloxera is a little louse that actually eats the roots of the vine and basically prevents the vine from taking up nutrients from the soil and ultimately will kill the vine. Um, so yeah, my dad, he loves to farm. He loves difficult things. And uh, so, you know, the, the phylloxera didn't show up till the vines were about 10 years old. So, mm. you know, the, the root structure had a chance to develop. Um, but now the vines are, you know, they're 30, 35 years old and, so yields are really low. Um, the wines are pretty concentrated and darker fruited, more structure, um, but really special, amazing part of the vineyard. Actually, speaking of Averado, I mean, he planted these vines, block five, which is the heart of the East Ridge. And we decided to tear out the eastern part of that block after the 21 harvest. And so Averado was, he said, you know, I'm going to I'm going to tear them out myself. And he got on the, the ripper and he tore them out um, full circle. Mm. So, yeah, he was like, nobody's. I'm gonna take out my babies. Yeah, he'd been caring for him, taking care of him. Are you replanting now? Yeah, we will. We'll replant this year. We let it lie fallow for a little bit, and then we'll replant it. Yeah. Um, this is a super wine geeky question, but do you have um, what clones are planted there? Like, or and 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 what is some of your favorite clones to work with? So we have. Uh, a lot of different plant material, a lot of different Pinot Noir plant material at Hirsch that came from all kinds of crazy places. But um, the original planting of Pinot that my dad put in, um, Jim Beauregard from the Santa Cruz Mountains actually encouraged my dad to plant Pinot there. Ryan Beauregard, you don't know if you know Ryan Beauregard, but his his another, Jim Beauregard's like, a, a, like another person that like we should be talking about more, like really, really interesting, and, and Ryan too. Um, so Jim came to visit my dad they were drinking buddies down in santa cruz and he came to visit my dad after my dad had bought the ranch and he was the person who was like this would be an epic place for pinot noir mm -hmm. and my dad was like whatever and then but jim gave him some cuttings that he had left over from a vineyard project and it wasn't until 15 years later that my dad started selling fruit to these like you know epic winemakers and they were like what's the clone my dad was like, Ugh. <laughs> he like <laughs> goes back to Jim and Jim's like, I have no idea. That was a, like many, many joints ago. And um, but he was like, I think it's Pomard Vainsville. Um, or he's like, I think the cuttings came from Oregon. And then we had an amphilographer, which is like a person that like, you know, pre-genetics would like look at like the leaf of a grape and mm -hmm. tell you what the variety is or mm -hmm. what the clone is. And so she was like, oh, it's Pomard and Vadensville, which is a Swiss clone, a French and a Swiss clone of Pinot, of Pinot are mixed together. And in the 70s, in the Oregon nurseries, they mixed those two things up. So a lot of the like old quote unquote Pomard in Oregon is Pomard Vadensville. So it all kind of like it seems to hang together. So our Pomard is this. It's actually now we know two clones of, Pino, of, of Pomard and two clones of Vadensville. And I think, you know, that genetic diversity creates a more interesting wine. So we have that. We have Swan. We have Mount Eden. Um, we have uh, a little bit of Martini. Joseph Swan. Yeah. Suitcase. And I think the Swan we got from Steve Kistler. He, like, cleaned it. Because it was virus, and he cleaned it up. Mm -hmm. The Mount Eden we got directly from Mount Eden before Mount Eden got replanted. So that's the original plant material that um, – was brought over from Burgundy in the eight, in, you know middle 1800s mm. and um, was successively replanted at Mount Eden and then Mount Eden was like we gotta just start over with you know in the in the early 80s I think they started or the the early 90s um, 
I mean, I think the key with Pinot, to quote my dad, is perfection is the enemy of Pinot Noir. So when you plant a vineyard and every single vine is a genetic copy of the other, which is how a lot of people plant vineyards, I just, yes, you gain, it's easier to farm, the vineyard will be more even, but you also lose something. You lose some fifth element and you lose some complexity. So, you know, what's called massal selection, in other words, having genetic diversity within the vineyard. I mean, it's, ex it's exactly like in the, in the natural world, right? Diverse, like homoge homogeneity is death, you know? Um, diversity is life, so. So what is um, like your focus uh, for you now, your vision and moving forward? Pour yourself a little bit of that. Pour yourself a little bit of that last uh, wine there. Um, kind of what's your, what, where, where are you going? What, what, what is your vision now? Um, you know, you're like a couple years in. I mean, how can we help the vineyard be more resilient in the face of climate change and help the whole place be more resilient in the face of climate change? I mean, it's here. It's not in the future. So I know it's like climate changing is what we're in. Yeah, I mean, so I heard somebody talk about that. It's like this, it's a slow-moving disaster. So, like, you see something like that horrible earthquake that just happened in Turkey and Syria, mm -hmm. and it's like people, people, like, take it really seriously. It moves them. They want to respond. They want to give. Like climate change is like a slow-moving crisis. And um, so it's like it's we, we feel differently about it. Um, we don't react as immediately, you know. It's like the frog in the boiling water. But it's here now. I mean, I think people are a lot more that, – that's changing. But I think for a long time that's how it felt. But here it is. You know, what are we going to do? Uh, Eric Asimov wrote a great piece in the New York Times about how – you know, because a lot of viticultural regions, it's highly specific, right? It's a highly specific grape planted in a highly specific soil and microclimate. And so when that climate shifts, everything changes. It's extremely sensitive. Um, but it doesn't mean it has to be existential. We just have to not be too tied to our identity. So if you'd asked me like five years ago, like how would you feel about Hirsch not being able to make Pinot Noir? I would have been like, oh, I would be devastated. Like that's who we are. And now I'm kind of like, I don't really care. Like. If we can live and, and, and farm in an ecological way and, and make good wines and take care of our people, it doesn't have to be Pinot Noir. I mean, obviously, that would be an incredibly difficult switch to make as a business and as a, as a farm, but more things are possible than we can even imagine until we're confronted with the challenge. Uh, you know, and do you have um, Chardonnay planted out there as well? We do. We have four acres of Chardonnay. Everything else is Pinot. Okay. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. I was like, is she gonna bring a Chardonnay? And she brought the rose. She oh, wanted. Rose. She was very. I like it though because you had a theme. You wanted to show Pinot Noir and various. Yes. The the range of Pinot Are Noir. Are you a Chardonnay lover? I'm a I'm a good Chardonnay lover. Yeah, I'm sorry I didn't bring it. <laughs> That's okay. Next I mean, time. Yeah, I'm a good Chardonnay lover. <laughs> Next time I come, we can just talk about Chardonnay. Yeah, it was, yeah it sounds good. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know if I have enough to say about Chardonnay to fill up a fill up at this time. Uh, we'll just we'll just drink. We'll get you. I mean, because I, I got you after lunch and you're here on this whirlwind tour. You know, we'll just we'll just get banged up <coughs> and, then, <laughs> and then there'll be plenty to talk about. Amazing. <laughs> and then I'll go take a nap. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm getting old. I can't I can't day drink as well as I used to be able to. <sighs> yeah. Um, well, I'm older than you. Um, and uh, you know what I realized, too? I, 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 I have a daughter. Her name is Jasmine. No it's shit. my daughter's name. How old yeah. is she? 
it'll be 30, 34 this yeah. year. When I was growing up, there was nobody named Jasmine. And now it's a little bit more. Yeah, when like right when she, so she was born in 89. So we're exactly 10 years apart. And, I was born in 79. And um, it was popular. And I'm not going to lie. She was named after Jasmine Guy, the actress from a different world. Oh, my God. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was I was like, she's too young to be named after Aladdin. Right. And also, you don't seem like an Aladdin, nah. a Disney princess Well, person. I had to watch it because, you know, because then I had a young child. Right, but, right, yeah, right. But, but, but it was already. It was yeah, already, yeah. yeah. And Lex, yeah. No, that's what it was, Jasmine Guy. And now it's like, it's it's pretty popular. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's um, so I, 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 I want to say that, you know, so. That's um, awesome. So we got a few minutes left um, before my next guest is coming in. <laughs> um, so I just want to wrap up a couple couple of questions. So I play this game. It's FMK. And, and shout out. Do you, do you know Brooke Sobel? Gary's? I do. Okay. Of course. Yeah. So Brooke. Love Brooke. She was on a podcast. And then like she'll text me ideas. So I And I've said this before, but I just want to acknowledge you again, Brooke. FMK, fuck, marry, kill. Three grapes, you get to fuck one, you have to marry one, and you get you have to kill one off. Grapes? Grapes. Like grape varieties. Grape varietals. What do I want to fuck? I mean, no, no, no. I, I give you the three grapes. Oh. You, you got to choose. Oh, it's not it's that not, easy. It's not, it's not open-ended. That, it's not that oh, easy. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Oh. <laughs> um, but actually, I'm making this easy. I kind of made it easy on you because I want to get inside your brain. Um, it would be too easy to put Pinot Noir or something. So, so I went all white grapes. This was actually in... Um, and let's kind of reveal your mind. So, uh, Riesling, Albarino, Sauvignon Blanc. Which one are you fucking? Which one are you marrying? And which grape are you killing off? I mean, you fuck the Albarino because, you know, one. It's every Spanish. Now and, every now, and also, like, every now and then, you know, whatever. But I think you marry the Riesling. You can have a relationship with Riesling, you yeah, know? Yeah. And then Sauvignon Blanc. Actually, you did that well. Some people agonize it, but I was like, I was like, I'm, you know, I was gonna do, you know, that's good. Okay, and and I love why, you know, very good, very cool. Um, what are you most excited about um, for the future of Jasmine Hirsch and Hirsch Vineyards? And on a professional level, you know, we're planting new vineyards, seizing that opportunity to learn about this topic of adapting Hirsch to climate change as much as we can, I would say. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And you grew up, uh, you grew up, essentially grew up in this business. Um, and your dad has worked with an amazing winemakers and you've come and, and you've seen that growing up and you still work with amazing winemakers and amazing people. You're in a relationship with an amazing winemaker, amazing person. Um, but as you as you as you as you were growing up and you said like in New York, was there a bottle of wine that just started it all for you? Like, was there a bottle of wine when you had it? Like, I get what my dad's doing. I get this. So, no. Okay. I don't have an epiphany wine moment because I grew up with wine, but I'll say, you know, in a different sense, when I came back to work for my dad in '08. I had been living in New York. I had been drinking all these epic wines, like amazing Burgundies and so on and so forth. And um, when I came home and started tasting our wines, I was like, oh my God, I do not like these wines. Because we were making wine in like a pretty ripe style, um, like 40% new oak. I mean, it, they were never, like my dad was always like unfined, unfiltered, mm -hmm. like no additives, mm -hmm. you know, except sulfur. And um, so he was always like, they weren't like super, they weren't like manipulated wines, but they were ripe. They were like 14%, you know, mm -hmm. you know, high 13s. And just, you know, 
just a very different style than what we're doing now. And I just was like, ooh, I don't really like these wines. And you know, I was hanging out with Raj Parr and he was like, okay, I was like, what's up with California Pinot Noir? Mm. And he was like, well here, try like a Bon Climat, try Literai. And he was starting to make wine, he had started Par Selections. And um, so, you know, it was honestly, it was more like a negative epiphany in the sense of like, I don't, I don't want us to I make wines this. like that. Yeah. And like, how can we, and that's like, Ross Cobb was not our winemaker yet, but he was gracious enough to be on like speed dial with me. And, and I was like, when should, like, should we be picking this? And not like I had any like right to be making picking decisions, but I was like poking my dad, like, let's pick this, like in 09, I was like, let's pick earlier, let's pick. And like, you know, I won some of the arguments, I lost some of them, but that I remember sitting with my dad tasting the 09s, which was the first vintage where I was like, we picked some stuff on a little bit earlier. Let's just not call it early, let's say the right time. And he, I remember him being like, this is the future. Because, you know, if you want to see the difference, if you want to see the site specificity, you need to avoid anything that homogenizes. And ripeness is like, excessive ripeness is like, like it's homogenizer number one. So, you know, when you pull back a little bit, you reveal. And so, you know, that, that was kind of a, a wine epiphany moment for me. There's two great quotes from this. When you, when you pull back a little bit to reveal and <laughs> bag of John's. <laughs> right. We should drink some more uh, wine and then we can go uh, yeah, there exactly. even further. <laughs> <laughs> the conversation that we have when you turn off the mics is gonna be oh my goodness. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jasmine, thank you so much for coming in. Tell people where they can find you, how they can be a part of what you're doing. Thank you, MJ. Uh, so hirschvineyards.com or hirschvineyards on IG or you know Jasmine Hirsch on IG too. A little bit different, yeah. different vibe. <laughs> <laughs> for all you listeners out there, make sure you, you check out the show notes for each show. I will put the links to her, her socials and their websites, and click right on and go there. Um, you know, uh, I'll list the wines we drank, and uh, you know, I I I. I, I Normally it says, and so much more, I'm not going to give you, you, you go to look Wikipedia for John. Maybe I will throw John in there just for a, Definitely. Uh, just for shits and giggles. But uh, make sure you check those out. Until the next time, cheers to the Mavericks, the philosophers, the deep thinkers, and all you wine drinkers. It's your boy, MJ. Peace. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something. You had some fun while you were here. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list.